How are you counted as righteous in the sight of the perfectly righteous God? This is critical because the God of righteousness dwells in righteousness and only allows those who are righteous into his righteous presence. So how are you counted as righteous in the sight of the perfectly righteous God? The answer to that question lies at the heart of our text and the heart of the Protestant Reformation. In 1516, the year leading up to Martin Luther's nailing of the 95 Theses on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel, Luther had been carefully monitoring the Roman Catholic Church's practice of selling indulgences. Indulgences were, in the words of the historian T.M. Lindsay, a stamped paper or ticket declaring that the purchaser had received pardon for the commission of sins which had been named, valued, and paid for. Johann Tetzel, a priest of the Dominican order, was commissioned to sell, through, sell indulgences throughout Germany. He would always survey his market and market his product before he entered the town. According to one Reformation scholar, Carter Lindsberg, Carter Lindsberg uh, Johann Tetzel's advanced men, so he sent men into the city ahead of him, advanced men, they would announce his arrival some weeks before. Uh, they compiled a special directory of the town that had listed the financial resources of its citizens so that they would know how much to charge. When it came time for Tetzel to enter the town, he would set the stage really in a rather dramatic fashion. One of Luther's biographers described the scene in this way. Quote, a cross bearing the papal arms preceded him, and the Pope's bull of indulgence was borne aloft on a gold-embroidered velvet cushion. The cross was solemnly planted in the marketplace, how appropriate for a sale, and the sermon began. Tetzel would prey on the emotions and the fears of the people who gathered in his hearing. He would exhort his hearers to consider the voices of their loved ones who had died. He told them that they were crying out saying, pity us, pity us. We are in dire torment from which you can redeem us for a pittance. Some of Tetzel's more memorable lines for closing the sale were ones like these. Place your penny on the drum, the pearly gates open and in strolls mum. Or, an eternal favorite, every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. This was a pastoral matter for Martin Luther. In the autumn of 1517, Johann Tetzel marched into Saxony selling indulgences on behalf of Pope Leo X. And while he was refused entry actually into Luther's Wittenberg, he entered into a nearby village. Some of Luther's congregants made their way over to Tetzel's indulgence boutique. And in their minds, they purchased paradise for a pittance from a priest. This roiled Luther. He was already distressed over the fact that the coffers of the Pope were filling up while the pockets of the poor were being emptied. This, among other issues, led Martin Luther to nail his 95 Theses on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel on October the 31st of 1517, or 506 years ago, this coming Tuesday. Luther's 32nd Theses address the issue of indulgences with striking clarity. Luther wrote, quote, All those who believe themselves certain of their own salvation by means of letters of indulgence will be eternally damned, together with their teachers. End quote. Luther understood that if you trust in your works of righteousness, you will not stand before the righteous God on the last day. You must place your faith alone in Christ alone for your acceptance with God. 
And that is what Paul proclaims in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. Follow along there as I read this passage now. Philippians 3, verses 1 to 9. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write these, the same things to you, is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Beloved, do you hear what Paul is saying in this passage? Paul is saying, I gave up the wrong works to gain the right righteousness, which comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Paul is saying, I'm not saved by my works of the law, but by the Lord Jesus. Paul is saying, not I, but Christ. Beloved, here's what God wants you to hear from his word this morning. Here is the sermon in a sentence. Give up the wrong works to gain Christ and his righteousness by faith. Give up the wrong works to gain Christ and his righteousness by faith. We'll look at this text before us under two main headings. Give up the wrong works of righteousness. Number one. Number two, gain Christ and his righteousness by faith. There should be a full outline provided there in your bullets, and I hope that that will help you follow along. Let's begin with our first point. Give up the wrong works of righteousness. And as we move into this first point, read the first seven verses again. Follow along as I read Philippians 3, verses 1 to 7. Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 1, as you see there, is the fountainhead of everything that Paul is going to say in chapter 3. Paul's admonition to the church in Philippi that he planted sometime between 49 and 51 AD is simply this, rejoice in the Lord. That's a command from Paul. He's telling them to rejoice in the Lord. Do you, do you know why Paul is commanding this? 
Because rejoicing in the Lord Jesus guards you from valuing or glorying in the wrong works of righteousness. And rejoicing in the Lord Jesus guides you to valuing or glorying in the right works of righteousness, namely Jesus' work. This is Paul's concern for the Philippians, that they give up the wrong works of righteousness, not be tempted by them, especially by the false teachers. That's why this warning actually in verse 2 comes out. He warns them to look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for the mutilators of the flesh. Paul, he's referring to a particular group of teachers there in Philippi. And he wants the Christians in Philippi, this church that he planted and dearly loves, to reject these teachers. And he deliberately uses these terms of dogs and evildoers and mutilators to demonstrate that they should be rejected. In Paul's day, dogs were not the lovable creatures that are enjoyed so often today. They were scavengers looking for scraps. The same was true of these teachers. They were looking to pick off vulnerable Christians, believers in Jesus. And the term evildoers was actually used in the Old Testament to refer to that person who should be excommunicated and cast out of the covenant community. That's how believers in Jesus should treat these false teachers. They should have nothing to do with them. And the term mutilators actually shows Paul's perspective on how this group of teachers misuse circumcision. Essentially, these teachers were Jews who maintained that along with faith in Jesus, circumcision was a required work for salvation. Uh, They would say that faith plus the work of circumcision plus the work and the adoption of other Jewish customs was necessary to make the cut for salvation. This was their spiritual math. Faith plus works equals salvation. As Richard Sibbs once said, it is a destructive addition to add anything to Christ. These teachers, they're sometimes referred to as Judaizers. Paul also addressed their threat in the book of Galatians. And while this group of false teachers have been going around asserting that in order to be a true Christian, you have to be circumcised and adopt certain Jewish customs, Paul asserts a contrary claim. Remember, he's writing to a mixed audience, a Jew and Gentile audience there. Notice what he says there. So these Gentiles who had not been circumcised, he's saying this of them. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The Judaizers... We're claiming to be the real people of God. But Paul says, no, 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 no. We are the circumcision. We are the real people of God. The members of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ are the real children of Abraham. We have faith like our father Abraham. We are the ones who, in the language of Colossians chapter 2, verse 10, have had our hearts circumcised by the Holy Spirit. It's not an outward circumcision that counts, but an inward circumcision of the heart. That's how you make the cut of salvation. I mean, even Moses, the one who gave the law, taught that in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16. So how do you know if if your heart has been circumcised by the Holy Spirit? You, in the words of verse 3, you see it there? You glory in Christ Jesus, and you put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in your works for right standing before God. Not even an ounce. Your hope is not in your works, but in Jesus' work. And Paul, he proves this by his own personal example in verses 4 to 6. Paul says, look, y'all, and I'm sure that's in the Greek somewhere. He says, look, y'all, if anyone has any reason on earth to trust in their works, it's me. If you want to talk about who was a faithful Jew, let me just give you my resume. And then Paul speaks 
about his ethnicity, his education, and his religious experience. Paul speaks about his ethnicity. He's been circumcised because he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's even of the beloved tribe of Benjamin. Paul speaks about his education. He was a Pharisee. More than being a student of the law and a teacher of the law, he was a lover of the law. Paul speaks about his experience. He was a zealous persecutor of the church and maintained the strictest standards of holiness. He wasn't sinless, but he was certainly sinning less than those Judaizers who were running around town. And adding up all of Paul's credentials, Paul had the highest lineage, the highest education, the highest zeal, the highest holiness under the law. And what does Paul say about all of that in verse 7? Do you see it? But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, because Paul knows that we intuitively get money and how it works, he's actually putting this in economic, financial, and accounting terms. Gain and loss are financial and accounting terms. And Paul perceives his previous credentials not as gain, but as a loss. Paul's credentials were not an asset. They were a liability. They were not a net neutral. They were a net negative in the sight of God. They increased his condemnation before the Creator. And let's be clear. It's not as though these things were bad in and of themselves. Paul wasn't saying that he hated his heritage. Paul's not saying, I I hate my ethnicity, I hate my education, I hate my experience. No. What Paul is saying is that when, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to being accepted as righteous in God's sight, his credentials, his works, and his trusting in them were not the right works. They were the wrong works to be trusting in. And if Paul depended upon them for his right standing with God, he would go down to judgment and not up to Jesus. Notice the very personal language of Paul here. Verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul is putting himself forward as an example. He's showing the Philippians, he's showing us how he thinks about his life before he trusted Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And in doing so, in putting himself forward As an example, he's showing by implication how the Philippians and about how you should think about your salvation. If Paul does not consider his works in the flesh as gain, then you shouldn't either. They were the wrong works to be trusting in. They amounted to spiritual bankruptcy, a debt that Paul could not pay. This was nothing but what the scriptures teach everywhere else. I mean, we read about it. The danger of self-justification by righteous works earlier in the service from Luke 18 with that parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Remember the, the Pharisee, in that parable, he was trusting in his righteous works and the tax collector was trusting in God's mercy. Jesus said that it was the tax collector who went home justified, counted as righteous in God's sight. We read about it also in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6 where the prophet Isaiah declares that all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags in God's sight. And the idea there in Isaiah is that our righteous deeds are like a polluted menstrual cloth in the sight of God. It's utter folly to rejoice in what God finds revolting. God finds the wrong works revolting because they honor us and not him. Instead of glorying in Christ Jesus, we glory in our flesh, ourselves, and our works. 
And that is a loss, according to Paul. We need to remember the words of Horatius Bonar that we sang in the hymn earlier. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Friends, trusting in the wrong works was not merely a problem in the first century with the Judaizers and Philippi. It wasn't merely a problem in the 16th century with the Roman Catholic Church and indulgences. It's a problem today. Here is the text of a decree from an indulgence from July of 2022. The Vatican declared, quote, that the apostolic penitentiary, in order to increase the devotion of the faithful and to procure the salvation of souls by virtue of the faculties attributed to it by the Supreme Pontiff Francis. I'll just pause to hear what the Vatican believes it can do through the indulgence. It can procure the salvation of souls. So how does that happen? Later in the decree, writes, the Supreme Pontiff on the fourth Sunday of July graciously grants from the heavenly treasures of the church the plenary indulgence under the usual conditions, sacramental confession, Eucharistic communion, and prayer accordance with the intentions of the Supreme Pontiff. Do you hear the conditions, the works necessary for procuring the salvation of souls? If you participated in sacramental confession, uh, Eucharistic communion, and prayer, in other words, if you did these works in a particular place at a particular time, you would receive an indulgence. And do you know how many times Jesus' name is mentioned in that decree? Zero. It is a glorying in the works of the flesh and not in the work of Jesus Christ. But beloved, this is not just a problem for the Roman Catholic Church today. It's a problem for you and me today. Here today. We are tempted to trust in our righteous deeds because it's in our nature to self-justify and rationalize our behavior. So beloved, when someone asks you, how are you saved? Don't point to your works. Don't point to your church attendance. Don't say, I'm saved because I've attended church every Sunday since I was eight days old or 14 years old or 21 years old or whatever it may be. Don't point to your Bible reading. Don't say, I'm saved because I've read through the Bible every year for five years now. Don't point to your victory over besetting sins. Don't say, I I know that I'm saved because I haven't looked at pornography in four weeks or had a drink in three years. Or yelled at my husband in seven days. Don't point to your baptism and say, well, I'm saved because I walked the aisle and went under the water. Don't point to your service at church. Don't say, I'm saved because I pray regularly in the public service. Or preach publicly in the service. Or teach Sunday school and small group. All of those things are good in and of themselves. And a Christian should pursue them and do them by the grace of God. But no one should depend upon those things for their right standing with God. When someone asks you, how are you saved? You point them to Jesus. He is how I am saved. And friend, if you've turned up here this morning and you've come to get right with God, then please hear what Paul is saying. He's saying it's not about what you can do. It is about what Jesus has done. Maybe you are weighed down by sin and you feel unclean. And the reality is, 
In God's sight, you are. Sin makes you unclean in the sight of God. It makes us all unclean and unrighteous and unacceptable in God's sight. And we are unable to do anything to advance our standing with God. It is Jesus' work. It is his perfect righteousness, his death on behalf of sinners like us, his payment of our debt, and his resurrection from the grave that saves. Friend, you can't get yourself clean enough or righteous enough to enter into God's righteous presence. But Jesus' blood can make you whiter than snow. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus alone. And there's hope here, right here in our text. Take comfort from Paul. He told us himself he was a rebel against God and a murderer, a persecutor of God's people. And God saved him by the righteousness of Jesus. Maybe you've come here proud. And you trust, actually, in your spiritual lineage or your good moral character. And if that's you, you can also take comfort from Paul. For God saved Paul in spite of him and trusting in his own works. That was Paul's former way of life. Again, it's not about what you can do or about what you have done, but about what Jesus has done for his people. Learn from Paul and give up the wrong works. That's what he's saying there in verse 7. Paul gave up the wrong works. He counted them as loss for the sake of Christ. In the words of Mr. Spurgeon, you will never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything else but Christ. When you give up the wrong works, You give up holding to the wrong works and you are ready to receive the Lord Jesus Christ and receive all that is gained in him, his righteousness. So let's turn then and consider our second point. Gain Christ and his righteousness by faith. Follow along now as I read verses 8 and 9. Paul writes, Indeed, I count everything as loss, Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. These verses, they begin with an elaboration of what Paul has already said. But they conclude by explaining that we gain Christ and his righteousness by faith. That word indeed there shows us that Paul is advancing a particular point that he made in verse 7. In verse 7, Paul said, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. Now notice the shift in tense. In verse 7, in the Greek, it was the perfect tense, I counted as loss. Verse 8, it's the present tense, I count everything as loss. Paul wasn't just persuaded that Christ was his only hope at his conversion. No, Paul continues to be persuaded that Jesus is his only hope. Paul was not second-guessing what he had counted as loss at his conversion. Rather, he continues to see Christ as of greater value than of all the academic accolades and career advancements that he could have gained as a Pharisee. Paul is saying, this is not just the way I used to view things, but this is how I confidently continue to view things. Paul is saying, I still count all of that loss. And everything else you want to throw in there, I still count that as loss too. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Let me put what Paul is saying like this. 
let's pretend there's a single man named Mike and that he enjoyed his 20 or so years of singleness. He was relatively free and able to do what he wanted. He played and coached hockey in the winter, but in the summers he spent his time at the golf course and summer camps. Single life was great. But then he met Lisa and he realized that she was so delightful and so desirable that he wanted to leave everything about singleness behind because of the surpassing worth of knowing Lisa as his wife. That's what he did decisively on the day of his marriage. He counted his previous life as a single man as loss for the sake of knowing Lisa as his wife. And now, some 19 years later, after having known her as his wife, he still believes without any regrets or doubts or second guesses that the privilege of knowing Lisa as his wife is worth more than anything you could offer him in the world. That's what Paul is saying about Jesus. Knowing Christ today is as precious to Paul, if not more precious to Paul, than on the day of his conversion. Having a saving relationship with Jesus Christ is worth more than anything Paul could have ever gained apart from Christ. Look at the language of verse 8. Paul uses the language of knowing Christ. Do you know Christ? I'm not asking if you know about him, that you know certain facts about where he lived, where he grew up, what he did. I'm asking if you know him relationally. How do you know anyone? Think about that. How how do you come to know somebody, who they are, what they're like? Well, by, by them speaking to you and telling themselves about you. I was, um, I was at the auto mechanic on Monday getting an oil change in my car, and I was talking with the owner of the shop and his wife. Um, and at one point, the owner of the shop said to me, you know, I need to stop talking about this uh, subject right now. My wife, uh, her face is telling me that I'm, I'm about to get into trouble. I can read her mind, and, and it's best if I just close my mouth now, okay? And here's what I said to Tom. I said, Tom, it's not that you can read her mind. It's that you know her. Right? You've been married to her for so long. You've listened to her so carefully that you understand her perspective. You can read her facial cues and body language because you've been reading them for years as you've conversed with her and listened to her. Do you know Jesus? Have you dwelt with him, listened to him, conversed with him? Jesus has made himself known in the Bible. God's word is where God speaks. That's why you read the Bible to know more of Christ, not to earn salvation. You trust Christ for salvation because you know Christ and who he has revealed himself to be in the Bible. You find him trustworthy because you know him. You learn Jesus' mind and perspective in the Bible. And you, dear Christian, you need to read your Bible. Now, you might say to me, I don't like reading. Well, Jesus gave us a book to tell us about himself and his glory. So it's time for you to change your mind about reading. And we have this wonderful technological advances these days that you can listen to the Bible and hear him speak. You should read God's word because, verse 8, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Knowing Christ is worth more than anything else in the world 
to Paul. And amazingly, do you you see how Paul characterizes his inestimably valuable relationship with Christ as being under Jesus' lordship? I mean, who talks like that these days? I value this relationship that I am under. We don't do that these days. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul, he doesn't just have this intellectual relationship with Jesus. He has this personal relationship with Jesus. A relationship where Jesus gives the orders and Paul obeys. Jesus gives the orders and Paul obeys. This relationship with Jesus is worth more to Paul than anything else in the universe. This declaration from Paul would have had profound significance to that church he's writing to in Philippi. Remember, Philippi is this proud Roman city where actually retired Roman soldiers would kind of settle there for their retirement. Uh, They loved Caesar. They believed Caesar to be their Lord. They obeyed Caesar's orders all of their lives. But Paul is speaking into that context where that kind of thinking is running around. And he is saying, Caesar is not ultimately my Lord. Jesus is. Do you call Jesus your Lord? And and is he actually your Lord? Does he give the orders and do you obey? Perhaps part of the reason that you are fumbling about in your relationship with the Lord Jesus is because you've forgotten that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the one that gives the orders and you are the one who obeys. Sometimes in our foolishness, we attempt to reverse the roles of our relationship with Jesus. We tell Jesus what we want him to do for us, and we expect him to do that, to obey. We wouldn't want to say that we're giving him orders, but that's essentially what we're doing. That will make for a joyless and frustrating relationship with Jesus. But there is great joy and fulfillment in following Jesus' lead, in trusting him and obeying his orders. Do you know Christ Jesus as your Lord? Now, in the second half of verse 8, Paul, he amplifies his point. He amplifies his point by using clear language and actually coarse language. Uh, Paul says that for Jesus' sake, he's suffered the loss of all things. He clearly extends it to kind of everything that could possibly be counted to his fleshly credit before God. That's the clear language. But Paul goes further with the coarse language in verse 8. In the second half of verse 8, he doesn't merely count those things as loss. He considers them as rubbish. That's the coarse language, rubbish. That term rubbish can also be translated feces or dung or refuse or garbage. The point is, is that what Paul has counted as loss is actually not even desirable. It's something to discard. I mean, would you really present feces or garbage to God For your ground is being accepted as righteous in his sight. Feces or garbage is not something you deliver to God as though it's something he would delight in. No, you discard it from his presence and count it as loss. And Paul's aim in all of this is clear. He wants something. Perhaps perhaps we should say he wants someone. Do you see it there at the end of verse 8? He uses the phrase, in order that. Why does Paul give up the wrong works so that or in order that he can gain Christ. Right? You, you cannot hold on to the wrong works and Christ at the same time. It's like what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 
You can only have one Lord. Do you have one Lord? Is that Lord the Lord Jesus? You only gain Christ by giving up every other hope of pleasing God. Remember, Paul, he's, he's doing spiritual math here. He's doing spiritual accounting, using financial terms. Paul has a, a kind of profit column and a loss column, right? For Paul, everything you could possibly think that stood to his credit is actually listed in the loss column. There are hundreds and hundreds of words listed in that loss column. Everything. Among them, ethnicity, education, religious experience. But then there's the profit column. So hundreds and hundreds of words, profit column, one word, Christ. Our blessed Savior, our benevolent Lord, and His righteousness is worth more than everything this world has to offer. The beauty of Christ surpasses all of creation. And the creation is beautiful. Did you see the moon last night or these last few days? As the old hymn says, fair is the sunshine, fairer still the moonlight, and all the twinkling starry host. But Jesus shines brighter. Jesus shines purer than all the angels that heaven can boast. Paul wanted nothing more than to be found in Christ. And the words of verse 9 explain what it means to gain Christ and be found in him. Through Paul's faith union with Christ, Paul has acquired the righteousness that he really needs to be welcomed into God's righteous presence. Those words found in him, they explain our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith brings us into union with Christ. And because of our union with Jesus Christ, we receive him and all of the benefits and blessings that he brings. Think of the analogy of marriage again. And this is a biblical analogy because we we get this in Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 calls the church the bride of Christ. In marriage, two two become one. Uh, A bride comes into union with her husband, and he is the source of, of her benefits and blessings. Now imagine the marital union of a blushing bride who is destitute and a groom who has immense wealth. Think of Elizabeth Bennett and Mr. Darcy from Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. Elizabeth and her family had nothing to offer. Elizabeth's relations and connections were, quote, decidedly below Mr. Darcy. And Mr. Darcy had 10,000 a year. When the two become one, Elizabeth is no longer Miss Bennett. She is Mrs. Darcy. Elizabeth is now, now no longer impoverished and decidedly below Now, because of her loving union with Mr. Darcy, she too is immensely wealthy and at his side. She receives the riches of her husband as her own. And so it is with us and Christ when we place our faith in Jesus and are found in him and united to him. When we place our faith in Jesus, we receive all of the riches of his righteousness. Every righteous work that he did throughout the whole course of his life is credited to our account. Just as he received all of our sin and all of the punishment that was due to it on the cross. To gain Christ includes gaining all of the benefits which flow from being united to Jesus through faith. So we receive his righteousness and we receive his acceptance into God's presence. Jesus has pledged himself and his righteousness to us and we give ourselves to him in faith. We trust in him. We rely upon him and depend upon him to bring us up from a condition 
that is decidedly below his, but to dwell in glory with him. Paul mentions faith twice in verse 9. Did you catch it? He he mentions that to underscore the necessity of faith in gaining Christ in his righteousness. Have you placed your faith in Jesus? John Murray once said that faith is a transference of reliance upon ourselves and all human resources to reliance upon Christ alone for our salvation. So in faith, you're transferring any reliance you have upon your works all to trusting Jesus Christ and his work. Have you transferred your reliance from your righteousness to Jesus and his righteousness? Do you see how in verse 9, how Paul is saying that he's, he's not relying or depending upon a righteousness that comes from the law. He contrasts that righteousness that comes from the law with the righteousness that comes from God. He's relying, depending upon that righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. And did you see where it comes from? It doesn't come from Paul. It doesn't come from his law keeping. It comes from God. In that sense, it's an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of Paul. It's a righteousness received through faith in Christ. This is how we are justified and counted as righteous in God's sight. Through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, his righteousness is credited to our account. Friend, have you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ? Give up the wrong works to gain Christ and his righteousness by faith. Friend, give up your sins and holding on to them. Uh, Maybe you have found yourself in a rut going over and over and over again into the same sin. Friend, the Lord Jesus can rescue rescue you from that sin and the consequences due to it. Give up your sins and hold on to Christ. He's done all that's necessary for your salvation. Jesus lived that righteous life that you have not lived. He died the death that your sins deserve. He received the eternal wrath of God against our sins on the cross. And he was buried in that grave. And three days later, God raised the Lord Jesus from the grave, vindicating him and proving to us all that his life and death on behalf of repenting sinners is acceptable in God's sight. And all those who turn from their sin and rely upon him, trust in him and his righteousness will be saved and welcomed into glory with him. Not because of their righteousness, but because of his. Friend, give up your sins and gain Christ today. And Christian, as we conclude, I wonder if Paul's spiritual autobiography here is your spiritual autobiography. I mean, did you notice this? Especially in verses 8 and 9, Paul says, I I think this way. He says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Do you? Are these words true of you? Paul says, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Do you want to gain Christ and be found in him? Christian, this is the view that you took on the day of your conversion. And it is the view that with Paul, you should take today and every day. Continue to aim at knowing Christ and gaining Christ. For Christ and his righteousness alone is the reason that the righteous God will receive you into his righteous presence. And the Lord Jesus today offers you his hand. Take it. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this word, from your word, for how it so clearly tells us that our only hope before your throne is the one who is perfectly righteous, the one who has ascended to that throne and now reigns in glory. Our hope is in Christ and in heaven. And we pray that day by day, you would knit our hearts to him, knowing him more, hearing from him, and speaking our hearts to him. Father, we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.